morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 4, and we'll be, uh, re- I'll be reading verses 18 to 22, and uh, just pray that, uh, reading from the ESV, and if you can get out your Bible, your phone, or it'll be on the screen right behind you as I read that. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Good morning. Wow, that is... I know this is Minnesota, but man, that's, that's pretty rough. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'm from Georgia, so there is participa- participation, but um, I, I know this is something we're growing in. I want to remind you that we're on this vision series as we start 2023 of what is our vision as a church. And one of the greatest causes for any organization to be dysfunctional or ineffective is there is a lack of clarity of vision. So as we embark in 2023, we're freshly opening God's word and asking, what is God's vision, mission, and values? And then how, as a church, do we come around and align ourselves with what God has already said, orient our lives around that? Last week, Pastor Ross, who's that? Pastor Ross preached on the vision of our church from the book of Habakkuk, stemming from this beautiful vision that God's Vision is to fill the world with his glory through his people. Like the waters cover the sea. And how does water, how much does, is the sea covered by water? All of it. And that's done through his people. And we're going to do that by multiplying worshipers of Jesus and healthy churches in the Twin Cities and beyond. So that's our vision. And if that's God's vision, that should be our vision for our life and our purpose. So this morning, we're going to ask ourselves, how do we get to that grand vision? If that's the destination, what's the day-to-day marching orders for us to get there? And so that's where we're getting into our mission, our mission statement. And, And if you are a visitor here today, or if you are part of Lebanon Church, I want to invite you to freshly take notice and ask yourself the simple question, do I want to be part of that mission? This is what we're calling you to join us in. Welcome, Kimes and baby. (laughs) Sorry, they just had a baby. And probably Daniel and Kate will be having a baby this week. So get your meals ready, people. We're going to love them well. What's our mission statement? Obviously, again, Our hope is it's just coming from God's word and we're just contextualizing it for our people in our time. Our mission, church, is to follow Jesus in everyday life and help all kinds of people do the same. 
Now this morning, we're gonna focus on that first half, following Jesus. What does that actually mean? If someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, what in the world does that mean? And then in a few weeks, when we talk about our third practice or core value, Pastor Dale is gonna be preaching on what it means to make disciples or to help all peoples do the same or kinds of people do the same. So let's focus on this one singular phrase, follow Jesus. What does it mean? It's a Christian term if you've been around church at all, and when you hear follow Jesus, it could just go over your head. But what does it actually mean to be a, a disciple of Jesus? And what I hope to show you this morning is that being a Christian means that you follow Jesus in everyday life. They're one in the same. They're not, it's not a super category that they're Christians and then there's are followers of Jesus. No, they're one in the same. True belief in the risen Christ will automatically mean radical following of Jesus in everyday life. That's what I hope to show you this morning. But before we get into our text, we always have to ask ourselves, what is the context that came before? Now, we're not in this series in, in the gospel of Matthew, but the last four chapters, what we see is Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he's proclaiming that the kingdom has come. He's bringing light in darkness. Darkness is fleeing. And he's doing it with his actions and his primarily through his words. And one of the most surprising truths, if you will see and study throughout the Bible, is that God does not do things by himself. Rarely. He often calls his people to join him. Incredible. And so Jesus is going to call some people to join him in this great mission he has. So Matthew 4, 18. It was wonderfully read. Let's look at it real quickly again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers and men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, and some son, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them too. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. So here's a question we should ask ourselves if we want to read anything in the Bible, is what would they have in mind when they hear this term, follow me? The danger is, is that our 21st century concepts can easily be projected upon an ancient text and say, well, what I think it means is probably what they thought. But we have it backwards. We actually have to start here and say, what would they think when they hear that term and then bring it to us? So what would they think when they hear Jesus walk up to them and say, follow me? See, in their context, this term following was very common in the Jewish context. Um, it's another term for discipleship. Jesus calling them is what rabbis would do all the time. In the Jewish context, good Jewish boys would go through two, one to three levels of schooling. One level, memorizing Genesis through Deuteronomy. The next level, memorizing the rest. If you made it, a lot of people didn't, would go to the next level. They would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And if you were the best of the best of that second level, you could finally apply to be a follower or an apprentice of a rabbi of your choosing. You would apply for the rabbi you most resonate with, the one you want to be like, and you would go up to this rabbi, you would apply to be a follower. That's 
the context here. This word follower, disciple, another good word that I just hinted at is apprentice. You would apprentice your life around this teacher. This term, when Jesus says, come follow me, in Greek, it's literally come behind me. Opizo, come behind me. So this idea of following is literally the teacher would walk, go about life, and his followers would literally be following. They'd be literally behind him in all that he does. A few main goals for any apprentice or disciple would be to be with his rabbi 24-7. Eat with him. Drink with him. Do life with him. Some reports talk about witnessing disciples following their rabbi into the bathroom. They don't want to miss a thing. They're following him all the time. Another goal would be to become like the rabbi. The more you're with this rabbi, the more you become like this rabbi. His character, his traits, his preaching style, right? Like all these things, you become more like the person when you're following him. Some of you guys got that. <laughs> and finally, well, not finally, you would also want to be, do what the rabbi does. And eventually, most rabbis, after you're with them for a while, a disciple would go off and multiply and spread the same kind of thinking and living as their rabbi and have their own followers. So when Jesus says, follow me, all this is in play with the disciples. Jesus is literally calling disciples, hey, come and follow me. Literally, walk behind me. Jesus is calling them to increasingly think the way he thinks, to see the world the way he sees them, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to think about God's word and interpret different texts the way he does, to pray like he prays. Teach us how to pray, right? To love like he does, to touch people the way he does, to do the miracles that he does, and eventually multiply Jesus' way to others. Because the reality is every true follower makes followers, which Pastor Dale will get into that later. But there are some differences. There's a lot of overlap to modern, uh, what Jesus does to what they would normally do, but there's some differences. Notice that typically a prospective applicant of a rabbi would go and pursue the teacher. They would go and say, can I follow you? But what? happens in this text who's the one pursuing jesus jesus goes and finds these people and says come follow me we see this throughout the gospels going out of his way levi or matthew tax collector traitor of israel come follow me he goes after them. It, the beauty of the gospel is not man finding his way, earning his way to God, but actually God coming to man and choosing and calling man. Furthermore, you have to know that this word, follow me, is not merely an invitation. I mean, if you want. It's a command in Greek. It's an imperative. Follow me. It's a summons. Your Lord, your creator is saying, come, follow me. Another difference is that what we'll see is Jesus is not calling them to follow him for a season and then go out and do their own thing, but it's actually a lifestyle, a never-ending process of following him, and while they do that, they call other people to follow Jesus with them. 
You never stop your apprenticeship with Jesus. Let's consider a little bit more of what it means to follow a simple way to put all this, if, if, I, if following him is coming behind him and following in his footsteps, that means that you are following another way. See, at the base foundation of discipleship, of apprenticeship of Jesus, is that we all, without the power of the Spirit changing our hearts, are following our own flesh Satan and the world, those are our three enemies of our soul. And if you do not have God intervene, that's who you are default following. The flesh, the world, Satan, you're following. And so at the base of discipleship is you renouncing, turning 180 away from following your flesh, the world, Satan, and say, I will follow Jesus, his way. This is why the early Christians were called followers of the way. This is the way of life. It's not just intellectual assent. Oh, I believe that. I pray to pray. No, it's, it's a full orientation of your life turning from your own control, your own way, the world's way to Christ's way. And this is a huge problem for any generation, but especially ours, because we have mantras that we hold to, like, be true to yourself right? It's one of the, the best things you can do is be authentic about who you are. Be true to yourself, which let me just tell you is terrible advice. If you want to be miserable, perpetually immature and unhealthy, follow that advice. Be true to who you are. What that assumes to being true to who you are is at the base level, you are good and you should just stay the same. But we're, we all know we're not just good. We're a mixed bag. There's good and there's bad and there's some really ugly stuff. Following Jesus is declaring my true self is not enough. Jesus is enough. My true self needs desperate transformation. And Jesus's likeness is who I want to be transformed into. But an important question you can ask and you must ask, and the disciples must have asked is, who is this Jesus if we're going to follow him? If we're going to reorient our entire direction of our life and come behind this rabbi and follow him and apprentice, apprentice our life around him, who is this Jesus? He better be important. See, if you were to read the first four chapters of, G of Matthew, the portrait you have of Jesus is this. I'm going to go rapid fire. Hopefully, by the Spirit, you can catch this. Jesus is the Savior the Christ, the Messiah that has long been promised to come from David's line. He is Emmanuel, God with us, fully human yet fully divine. No one like him in that category. The one whose birth is the fulfillment of generations of prophecies and longings. He is the Savior King, righteous judge of the world, who is the Son of Man and also the Lamb of God. Both the King and yet the sacrifice. He is the light of the world to bring hope to all nations. And this Christ looks to these men and say, says, follow me. When we consider the gravity of all that Jesus is, it is no wonder why the disciples would give up everything they have and follow him. This is why true followers of Jesus are radically different over time. Because they, the one they're following is so incredibly glorious and worthy. And it transforms them. 
it's, it's pretty insane when we consider how many people are polled in our nation and, and profess that they're Christians, and yet very little show any evidence that they've encountered this risen Christ. I heard this illustration from a, a pastor named David Platt. It goes like this. Imagine you guys are all sitting here waiting. Dave just read, and I don't show up. And I finally show up five minutes later after all you guys are sitting around. And I said, sorry, I'm late, guys. I was driving here on the interstate, and my tire blew, so I was changing my tire. And as I stepped onto the interstate, a giant 18-wheel truck smashed into me. And so I got up, dust myself off, put my tire back on, and I drove here, and now I'm here. Right? None of you would believe me. You may not know a lot of things, but you know that if anybody encounters such a great force going at that speed, you cannot be unchanged. You know that I'm either lying or I'm delusional. You should walk out. You should confront me. You should help me in that moment. Because all of you know that anybody who encounters something like a Mack truck would look different. How much more when a person comes face to face with the God of the universe in flesh? How much more if you say that you've met Jesus, the risen king, you have to look different. Everything changes. And the longer you follow Jesus and you're apprentice of Jesus, the more you should look different. It wouldn't make sense. If you just started day one to follow Jesus, you would be pretty rough around the edges, right? And if any of you guys watched the incredible show, The Chosen, the first few days and weeks when any person follows Jesus, they're pretty off the wall. They're, they think like the world still. Simon the Zealot still wants to pull out his dagger all the time. Peter wants to ostracize people. Andrew shames Mary when she falls back into sin. Uh, you, if you see the show, you see very realistic portrayals of what would likely happen with this mixed bag of disciples. But you would be pretty surprised if you would see them continually doing that five years down walking with Jesus, right? See, because the more you're around him, the more he transforms you. you. You begin to catch it, right? Yes, you're taught, but it's more caught too. You start to get, on, get his traits. And I've wrestled back and forth if I'm going to do this next illustration because I, I'm afraid of what would happen, but let me compromise and tell you what I would have done instead of doing it. This is the illustration. Don't do this, but stand up if you've been following Jesus for five years, been a Christian for five years. Now stay standing if you've been a Christian for 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50. And as I get to the higher numbers, I would, there would be very few people standing and then I would say, everyone, look around at the people standing. These people should be the most like Christ, the most in love with him, the most shaped by his word out of all of us because they've had more years under his apprenticeship. But the reality is so many Christians, so-called Christians, are very similar to the day they said yes to Jesus than they are now. And the reality is over time, Though imperfect, though you'll have seasons of struggle, the upward reality should be more like Jesus, more in love with him. Are you, Christian, more like Jesus this right now than you were a year ago? You're more in love with him, 
more like him. See, this person we're following is worthy of everything, but what cost does that come with? I want to share a quick passage from Luke 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? You ought not to start something if you, unless you actually count the cost. What's the cost? Well, if we look back at Matthew 4.22, what does it say? Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Luke's account, Luke 5.11, next, next slide. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left some things, everything, and followed him. Immediately they left their livelihood, all that they knew, generations of traditions, generations of trade, their potential acceptance for their family and community. They left even their father, which was one of the strongest ties of that community, of that time. Just to be clear, this is not excuse for us to treat our families poorly. If you look at Mark's account, it shows that there were other workers who worked with their father. So it wasn't like they just left him and abandoned him into poverty. But what we see clearly is that following Jesus, their rabbi, didn't mean a little part-time gig. Hey, Jesus, uh, how does next Sunday look like for you? Between uh, 10.30 to 12? No later? Because Vikings are playing? I'll, I'll fit you in, Jesus. How about, oh, you know what? I really want to step up my game this year. How about Wednesday nights? No, no, no. Following their rabbi meant literally 24-7, reorienting their entire lives around Jesus. Looking at Matthew chapter 8, let's look at more of the costs. One known is the, one cost is the unknown. I'm, I'm going to just paraphrase this for time's sake. But what we see in Matthew 8 is that some people want to follow Jesus. Teacher, where are you going? And Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, you won't, have, you won't be guaranteed a place to live. You may be homeless. It's pretty heavy words. And what we see here is Jesus is saying, you don't just give me a tithe of your life. You give me all of your life. And there's no certainty of every day that will come except the certainty that you'll be with me. Jesus doesn't tell them, hey, here's the rest of your life's plan. One year from now, you'll meet the person of your dreams after some struggle of singlehood. Then you will go through a year of infertility, and then you'll have a baby, and then you will do this, and then you will do that. No, no, he just says, follow me, and that's enough. You don't need to know where you're going, but hear who you're with. Tom Wright, a scholar, writes about James following Jesus, and he says this. It's right here. Did they have an inkling that both of them would end up being crucified as their master would be? Did James, the brother of John, have the slightest idea that within a few years he would be dead, killed by the orders of Herod? No, they didn't. God in his mercy reveals things little by little. They saw neither the glory nor the pain. That day when a young man walked by the sea in their little town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, they only saw him and that was enough. Some of you may say, Sam, Sam, context. You've taught us context is king, Sam. 
These passages are talking about the 12 apostles. You're being a little cultish, a little extreme about it all, a little heavy-handed. Calm down. You're just extra. You're too extra always, Sam. But let me show you Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so he already has disciples, he's calling others, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Look, look, hear this language. Anyone, whoever. This is anybody. This is not to be an apostle. This is anybody who wants to follow Christ. This is normal Christianity. Everything else is counterfeits. This is not good Christians and there's just like bad Christians, but are Christians, they're just not very good at it. No, this is normal Christianity. It's just Christian. Okay, the cost is great. Some of you feel uncomfortable. I understand that. It ought to make you comfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, I said comfortable. If you're not uncomfortable, then you're not actually weighing and processing these words that Jesus, are, Jesus is saying. The cost is great. Let me tell you how great it is, even more. What's the scope? In what areas does Jesus call us to follow him in? Following Jesus means that he is Lord over every sphere of your life, every detail, everything. That is why our mission statement says, not just we follow Jesus, because we can easily think, oh, that's a one-time decision back at camp when everyone was a Christian and it was really celebrated. No, no, follow Jesus in everyday life. I like the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. We're going to sing it later. But the danger of that song is that many Christians interpret I Have Decided as a one-time event. But rather, that is the song of every day. Because every day we get back on our throne and we want to take control, don't we? The phrase everyday life also helps us push back against the common tendency of all of us, including me, to compartmentalize Jesus in our life. Imagine your life is a house, really big house, lots and lots of room, okay? And each room of your house represents a different category in your life. Relationships, career, leisure time, hobbies, money, sexuality, you name it, every category of our life, that's our life, travel, food, everything. Following Jesus means that Jesus has access to go into every room and do whatever he'd like. Rearrange, take out, close doors. Let me ask you a question this morning, if you're listening with me. Are there any rooms of your house that you would panic if Jesus started walking towards it. No, 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 no. Let's go over here to this room. This room is really nice. This room, not that room. Any room, Jesus, but that room. I will not let you touch the room of my bitterness and my unforgiveness. I will not let you touch the room of my addictions, my past that's hidden carefully. I will not let you touch the room of my career, or the safety in the neighborhood I want to live, the dream of my kids, whatever room it is, it differs for all of us 
But the reality for all of us must be that every room is flung wide open for Jesus to go into, and we follow him. What would you do, Jesus, in the room of my work? How would you be a boss? How would you be a worker? How would you be a neighbor, Jesus? And what happens is when you have this posture of surrender, though imperfect, but truly, as you let Jesus fling wide the doors of every room of your heart, is that over time, he does a renovation of your heart. And you become more and more like Jesus. But I can imagine some of you have been hearing this, and you think, Sam, that's too hard. It is. It's too costly. It is. So how do we let Jesus take such a place of supremacy in our lives to be able to count such costs. Let me draw your attention to a parable Jesus shares. Would you read this with me? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven. So man finds a treasure to his surprise in a, a field. But he can't get the treasure yet because he doesn't own the field. It's not legally his. So what does he do? He buries it up. He goes and he takes every last possession he has, sells it all, takes the proceeds, and buys that field. Why? Because he knows that everything he owns is not more worthy and costly than what he can gain. Does he do it begrudgingly? Oh, I've got to sell everything I have for this great treasure. No, with joy. He says, what I have is nothing compared to that. So I'm gonna give it all for that. This is the reality for true Christians. They have discovered that Christ is the great treasure of the universe, the one their soul has been longing for and searching for their whole life. And when they see that Christ is the far surpassing treasure in their life, everything, everything is on the table. You could have it all. Imagine a, a giant scale. And you take everything of the world, of worth, of glory, fame, money, relationships, good things, sinful things, everything, all of it, and just stack it up on one side of the scale. And then you take Christ and you put him on the other side of the scale. What happens? The scale breaks and immediately every single thing of worth and value flies up in the air like a feather compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. Because all those, those things are worthy they are glorious, not compared to Christ. So for Christians who lay down their lives and their careers, their dream homes or neighborhoods, even their safety, they're not crazy. They're rational. They're doing good math. Have you ever met a missionary who laid it all down and kept laying it all down? You say, I could never do that. They're just being rational because they've seen the worth of Christ being far surpassing all that is to lose. If you truly believe Jesus is who he claims he is, then you will follow with everything. Following Jesus in everyday life, with all of your life, follows true belief. If you truly believe that, it just makes sense. And yet, here's the tricky tension you may feel. Following Jesus is not so linear. It's not like one day you see the glory of Christ and then forever you perfectly are going up following him. It's more like an escalator or like hills, but the hills are slowly moving upward. 
You have seasons. I have seasons of doubt. I just came out of two weeks of dryness with the Lord, and he's restoring me in the last week. It's not perfectly linear. Let me show you a great example in in the life of Peter. The apostle Peter saw the worth of Christ. You remember that beautiful scene? He realizes Christ's worth, and he drops on his knees, and he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus calls him to follow him. And Peter sees his worth, and he leaves everything. He says that later on in the Gospels. Lord, we've left everything for you, to follow you. But what happens at the night that Jesus was betrayed, in the moment of his greatest need, Peter abandons Jesus. Not just abandons Jesus, but denies Jesus three times. And makes eye contact with Jesus. Why? Because in that moment, he saw the worth of his security, the worth of his community, the worth of his safety greater than the worth of Christ. But you know how the story goes. Jesus rises from the grave and he pursues Jesus. He doesn't wait for Jesus to come get. He goes after Peter and he finds Peter back in his old trade as a fisherman. Peter must have thought, I'm no longer fit to be a follower of Jesus. I'll go back to what I know. I've disqualified myself forever. I can't be a follower of Jesus. I'm not cut cut from the cloth. I'm not good enough. And Jesus goes through a tender yet very powerful process of restoring Peter. Peter is then freshly established as a leader of the church, though very humble. And what does Jesus say at the very end of John chapter 21, verse 19? Would you read this out loud with me? And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Our Jesus is so patient with us, isn't he? He's not like, Peter, you had your one chance. You blew it too bad. You're done. Just follow me again. Maybe you've taken a break from following Jesus. Maybe you've taken the lead lately in your life. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's been a season. Maybe it's been a year. You've been following the flesh, the world, and the devil instead of Christ. Peter did. I've done it. But the beauty is Jesus is not just our leader, but he's our savior. He dies for fickle, stubborn, and hard-headed people like Peter, like me, like you. And our refusal to follow him warrants punishment. It does. He is our sovereign. He is the supreme treasure. We are rejecting him when we choose our own way. It's not neutral. You either follow him or you reject him. Jesus does not give a gray middle. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus' death on the cross took every punishment Every time you and I turned away from following him. Remember, I said this earlier, Jesus is not just the king or the teacher, but he's also the sacrifice for our sins. So we're failing upward. Remember what repentance is. It's going in one direction, following our flesh, staying in the world, and then going 180 towards Jesus. If you've fallen away from following Jesus this morning, come back to him and follow him. If you've never committed your life to following Jesus, listen, if you've never committed to actually following him, maybe you've gone through church motions, you've gone through the whole Christian game, you've been going to church your whole life, but you've never actually followed him, or maybe you're a skeptic, you've never been part of church, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is speaking through me right now and says to you, follow me, follow me. And if you've fallen off, taking the reins again, he says this to you again, 
follow me. This is your Lord, whether you receive him or not, and he can be your savior too. So if you want to follow Jesus, would you please pray with me or someone today who's actually following Jesus with their whole life? Don't leave without that. The reality here is that every single person here is actually a follower and a disciple. Do you know that? We all are disciples. We're, we all are following something. There is something or someone that you have oriented and committed your whole life to have more of, to be like. It could be something good, God-given, like a relationship, friend group, career, money, comfort, safety, hobby, like sports, or something darker, like an addiction. But all of us here, without question, without exception, have reoriented your life, oriented your life around following something or someone. So the question is not, should you be a follower because you are a follower? The question is, who are you following this morning? Who are you being discipled by? Because you already are. Is there someone or something taking the place of Jesus as your leader? If that's the case, let Jesus take the leader spot again, the teacher spot again, and follow him afresh. We've been mainly talking about the posture of following Jesus, but what does that actually look like tangibly? Let me land the plane here. How do we actually follow Jesus? In the 90s, if you were around, a lot of us had a bracelet. It said WWJD. Did anyone have the, that bracelet? Anyone? Anybody still have that bracelet? Okay. Oh, so one person. It's a great question. A lot of good would come in the world if people stopped and said WWJD. But it's a challenging question in reality because if you are a nursing mom here trying to sleep train your baby, it's hard to say, what would Jesus, an Israeli Jewish man, itinerant preacher in his 30s do? It's kind of hard to make that connection sometimes, isn't it? Because you're not Jesus. We're following Jesus. We're not Jesus, exactly. A, a better question is, it's on the screen. Oh, more helpful is, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he were you? As many of you know, I've opened up a business on the side with a good friend of mine, and I'm having to ask myself this question every day and multiple times a day with great struggle. How would Jesus run this business? What would he be like? How would he interact with customers? What would his strategies be? What would he do? It's been a challenge the question that you should ask, and how do we know what he would do? Jesus is not in the flesh right now until his coming, second coming. So we can't just like walk around with him. We have the Holy Spirit. So how do we do this? Well, let me tell you this. You have to see him more clearly. The clearer you see him, the more you know what he would do. Let me give you a quick passage. I'm going to run out of time, so I got to do this fast, but I, I needed to put this in here. Is it here? Great. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we, would you read this with me? And we, all with unveiled face. So, so the more we see Christ, the more we become like Christ, and the more we'll do what he would do in all, any kind of situation. 
So how do you do that? Here are four quick ways. One, immerse yourselves in Jesus' words and time with Jesus. Some of you are trying to be like Jesus and you've never read your whole Bible. What if you're missing huge chunks on what it would be like to follow Jesus? You're gonna have huge gaps in your life. How can you, over years, call yourself a follower of Jesus if you never even read his whole word, let alone study it, commit your whole life around it? And I know that feels like a little harsh jab, but I wanna call you to give yourself to this word, swim in it. Let this shape you. Number two, commit to studying Jesus' life in the Gospels. Go to the Gospels regularly. See how Jesus interacts with people, the poor, the marginalized, the religious leaders. How does he do that? And then over time, you know how to do it yourself in different situations. Three, surround yourselves with people who are like Jesus. You get to see how he's incarnated in their life. Number four, take daily steps to do what Jesus would do, obey. So let me finish with this. As we continue our vision series, we'll now start covering our core practices or values. Next week, Pastor Ross is going to preach on be with the Father. And then the following week, Scott's going to preach on love his family. And then Pastor Dale's going to preach on make disciples. And if you take those three practices and give your whole life to them, that's a lot of what it means to follow Jesus. And imagine, church, every single person in this room took that call seriously. Imagine if we all literally followed Jesus in 2023. Can you imagine what our families would look like? Our personal lives would look like? Our joy would look like? Our neighbors, neighborhoods would look like? Our workplaces? It would radically transform the cities over time. It really would. Church, let us follow Jesus in everyday life and help all kinds of people do the same. And Lebanon members, visitors here, would you join us in that mission? I know there's a lot of but if, but what about this? Those are good. Those are important. But would you rally yourselves supremely around this? Let's follow Jesus together. And if we do this, we're going to see God glorified by seeing worshipers of Jesus multiplied and healthy churches multiplied in the Twin Cities and beyond. Let's do that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the kindness that you would call us to yourself, us, sinners, fickle people, broken people. You would be so patient with us, Jesus. Lord, I pray that this word would deeply shape us, that every one of us would have renewed minds by your word, to not think Christian means a tender or a fan, but an apprentice, a disciple, a follower, that you would radically orient all of our lives in this room to follow Jesus in everyday life. Lord, whatever competing loves and leaders in our life, would you highlight them right now? And by your spirit, give us the power to remove them from their pedestal. We need your help. We love these other things too much sometimes. Help us put you in the rightful place. Give us more of Christ. Help us have a greater encounter with you so that all that you call us to give up would be counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Do a mighty work in us right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.